Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to chapter 4, verses 13. I just ask that you bear with me today. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezlai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. (laughs) And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, 
and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caroline. I always say thank you after someone has read, but never more do I mean it today, Caroline, honestly. Um, some of you are thinking, how, just how cruel can you be making someone read that kind of a list? But um, it's important. We're going to see today why it is important. Um, he may be a good footballer, but he has failed in behaving like a good human being. He may be a good footballer, but he has failed in behaving like a good human being. That was one reporter's withering assessment of Mason Greenwood this week that I read. The Manchester United footballer in the news for all the wrong reasons. This report finds there have been failures in leadership. Some of the gatherings which took place in Downing Street represent a serious failure to observe the high standards expected of those working at the heart of government. That's how the Sue Gray report assessed Boris Johnson's leadership within number 10, given all the parties during lockdown periods. Just two examples this week of very public failure. I wonder how that word failure makes you feel the thoughts, the emotions that that word evokes in your mind. Sometimes in our world, failure is seen as a a really good thing, a, a positive thing, almost like stepping stones on the path to success. I find this quote, failure is part of the process of success. People who avoid failure also avoid success. What doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, and all that. Some failure seen as a really helpful, really necessary thing, but there's another type of failure, a type of failure in life that never leads to greater achievement. Moral failure, spiritual failure, the type of failure that leads us to say, I'm not the kind of person that I thought I was. I'm not the kind of person I want to be. I've fallen short of my standards. How much more have I fallen short of God's standards too? Feeling morally, feeling sexually, feeling relationally, feeling as a son or a daughter, as a mother or a father, as a spouse, a friend, a colleague, follower of Jesus Christ. See, there is the failure that the Bible calls sin. And sin is not just what we do. Sin is who we are. I know what it's like to feel, to be a failure. And if you're being totally honest this morning, I think you would say the same. 
But here's what Luke is telling us in this passage this morning, an amazing passage, a passage that on first reading, you maybe wonder, why are we reading all of this together from Jesus being baptized right through to the end of his temptation with a big long list of names in the middle? What's the purpose in all this? Well, Luke has got a very specific purpose. It's to show us that when we see Jesus for who he really is, we discover that he is the answer to all of our failures. When we see who Jesus really is, we discover that he is the answer to all of our failures in life. And that's very, very good news this morning for you and for me. The gospel, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an incredible story about an incredible person who is the answer to all of our failures. And as we look at God's word this morning, and as we come to a passage like this with all of our feelings of failure maybe in life, the burdens that we have, the guilt and the shame that maybe we carry, Luke wants us to see this morning that where we have failed, Jesus Christ has succeeded. Where we have failed, Jesus Christ succeeds. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get going. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that we would see Jesus more clearly than ever before, that our hearts would be stirred to love and to praise Jesus and more deeply than ever before. We thank you that you speak to us, and we pray that you would change us by your word and by your spirit. Amen. Three things I think Luke wants us to see from this uh, passage this morning. Here's the three things. You'll see them in the screen. I think he wants us to know that there is a bigger story in all this. He wants us to know the story. He wants us to feel the suspense of this story as well. Uh, I think he wants us, at the end, to see God's Son, the true and beloved Son, the better Son. Those are the three things. Because, as I've said already, when we see who Jesus really is, we see that he is the answer to all of our failures. So firstly, Luke wants us to know the story. If we're to understand the significance of these verses, of what takes place here in Luke's gospel, we need to know the bigger story within all this. It's almost like this story, this passage, it is like an icon, you know, on a, on a computer desktop like a Word document where it's small there in the desktop, but when you click on it, it expands and gives the whole document, the whole picture that's there. Well, that's what, what, what it's like as we click on, on Luke chapter 3 and 4. We get the scale of the story that Luke is telling. Because we maybe don't realize it on first look, but this is a story of cosmic proportions. Luke says in verse 23, the time has now come for Jesus to begin his public ministry. This is him finally stepping onto the stage after his supporting act, John the Baptist, has prepared the crowd. And the spotlight is on Jesus. It's all about who he is and what he says and what he does. Jesus is taking center stage and he's doing that in a world full of failure. 
That's what we see in Luke chapter 3. It's what we looked at last week. Come back with me to to verse 7 of chapter 3. This is what uh, John the Baptist in his ministry was doing and what he was saying to the people there. John said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by, by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John was not speaking to successful people here. These were religious failures. People who stood proud, puffing out their chest, saying, we have Abraham as our father. And John has come proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. He says to them, you may have Abraham as your father, but tell me about the life that you've lived in the last week. Tell me about the things that you've done. Tell me about the way that you spoke to your husband or your wife. Tell me about the things that you looked at when no one else was around. This is a message for those who have failed spiritually. And look at verse 12. This is a message for those who failed morally as well. Tax collectors, the immoral outcasts of the day. And verse 14, Roman soldiers, those who extorted and oppressed those who were weak. This is the world into which Jesus Christ has come. And it's a world like ours, isn't it? We live in a world just like this, with people just like this, moral and spiritual failures. We've seen it, two of them highlighted This is a world where religious people think that their church attendance, their religious acts, their good works, it makes them morally and spiritually superior to others. It's those things that make them acceptable to God. They put themselves on those kind of pedestals. This is a world where the powerful get rich at the expense of the poor where they exert their authority on those who are weak and needy. And it's into this world that Jesus Christ comes to a world of failure. And what does Jesus Christ come to do? What's the the very first thing that happens before his ministry begins? Look at verse 21. He comes to be baptized by John to be baptized. He comes to identify with those who have failed. Look at what happens when Jesus is baptized. Verse 22, we get this voice from heaven speaking, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And from then on until the end of the passage, what is the repeated word that just keeps cropping up? If you were to get out a red pen and and highlight the word or circle the word that comes up most in this section of Scripture, what would it be? It's the word son, isn't it? Luke keeps saying it over and over and over again. You can't miss it. It's like a drumbeat through that long genealogy that Caroline had to read. Son of, son of, son of. 
And then into the temptation story in chapter 4, we get this theme of sonship again. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. What is the very first thing that the serpent says to Jesus Christ? If you are the Son of God. If what that voice from heaven said is true, then do this. This whole section of Luke's gospel is about the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. He's been baptized and he comes out of the water and something happens that has never happened before to anyone else who's been baptized by John in the River Jordan. A voice from heaven above speaks and declares, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. But look what else Luke is doing with this story in order to help us grasp the size and significance of it all. Where does the genealogy end in chapter 3? It starts in verse 23 with Jesus being the son as was supposed of Joseph. We know that. We've read that already. And it ends in verse 38 with his family line being traced all the way through to Adam, the son of God. See, when the Bible was first compiled and put together, these verse numbers and chapter numbers were, were never put together. And, and that means that that big number four that you have in your Bible, it wasn't there in the original text when this was written. And so Luke is, is trying to convey something to us because he wants us to read right through from chapter three to four. He doesn't want us to stop and to treat them as a separate kind of passages. He wants us to realize that Jesus is not the only son of God in this passage. Adam was the son of God. And even more than that, Jesus in answering the devil in chapter four, verse four, he, he uses a direct quote from the Old Testament from the book of Deuteronomy. And each of the quotes actually that he, he uh, in quote in scripture, they're all from the book of Deuteronomy. But I want you to come with me uh, in your Bible to Deuteronomy 8. It's on the screen as well. Um, you'll see it there. Because the first three verses of Deuteronomy 8, they help us understand the whole story, to see the bigger picture in, in all this. This is a sermon in Deuteronomy 8 that Moses is preaching to Israel, reminding them of the time that they were in the, in the wilderness being tested for 40 years. This is what it says in verse 1. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go on, uh, go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Are you starting to see the, the whole story here? Do you see the parallels between what's going on in the wilderness with Israel and what's going on in the wilderness with Jesus Christ? Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. And did you know that in the Old Testament, Israel was actually called God's son? God said to Pharaoh in, in Exodus 4, 22, 
Israel is my firstborn son, so let my people go. You see what Luke is doing here, the size of this story that he is telling. Jesus, the Son of God, steps onto the stage, but two other sons have been there before him. They have moved off to the side, and Jesus is right there in the middle. Luke is linking this Son of God, Jesus Christ, to Adam, another Son of God. He's linking Israel, who hundreds of years before have been led by God's Spirit into the wilderness where they were tested for 40 years. And Jesus here, he is led out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested by the devil. This is a massive story, huge. And Luke says, in order to feel the weight of this passage, in order to to grasp what it's all about, you need to know the whole story. But secondly, Luke wants us to feel the suspense to feel the suspense, like any good storyteller, he wants us to to be on the edge of our seats because as all the the pieces start to fall together here, we're meant to be watching this, kind of teetering on the edge, feeling the suspense because this story is one of conflict, a war between the forces of good and evil. Jesus is alone in the wilderness. And verse 2 tells us in chapter 4 that he's eaten nothing during those long 40 days in the desert. And understandably, Luke says that he was hungry. Just as Deuteronomy 8 tells us that Israel were hungry during those 40 years in the desert. And it's now, at this point, when Jesus is most vulnerable, when he's most weak, the devil decides to come to him. And at this moment, we are meant to feel the suspense. Because what happens next, how Jesus responds, it will have cosmic ramifications. It's a moment that matters for all eternity, for all humanity. Will Jesus be the same as the other sons of God? Adam and Israel? Or will Jesus be a different son? That's the question Luke wants us to ask. What Luke is doing is he's using the idea of sonship to tell the entire story of the Bible. Imagine for a moment that you're going to the theater to watch a play. And the play that you're going to watch is called The Story of the Bible. You take your seat in the theater, you sit down and get comfortable, the lights dim, and you get scene number one. The curtain rises on a beautiful garden, and we watch as into God's perfect creation, the first human beings arrive, Adam and Eve. And in the garden, Adam is identified as God's own son. Now, as we watch, we see what kind of son Adam is. It doesn't take long. Genesis chapter 3, Adam eats the forbidden fruit which God commanded him not to eat. He disobeys God's word. He rejects God's rule and authority over his life. And what happens to the set on the stage? 
it begins to just break down. Spoiled and marred by sin, that's what happens to the beautiful garden. And it becomes a desert wilderness. We watch on. Scene two of the story of the Bible. Israel, also called God's son, is on the stage now. And this son has experienced God's salvation. They have been rescued from Egypt, from slavery and captivity. And they've been led out by God into the wilderness. He's leading them through the desert to the land that he has promised to give to them. A land of blessing, of plenty. And the suspense starts to build around the theater. What kind of son will this one be? Will they be any different to the first? Well, we watch on, and just as the first son rejected God, so too does this one. Even though they've experienced God's salvation and his goodness and his faithfulness, even though he's made covenant promises to them to bless them, they turn away from him. In the wilderness, they grumble and complain because they're hungry. They disobey God, and in their lowest moment, we see them build a golden calf. It becomes the object of their worship and love and not God. Two sons, two failures. But now we come to the New Testament, to Luke's gospel, to scene three. The curtain rises, and Jesus Christ is there. He's on his own. The spotlight falls on him. And we watch as he goes out, not into a garden, but into the wilderness. And we ask that same question again. What kind of son will he be? Will he be a son who succumbs to the temptation just like Adam did in the garden? Will he be a son who feels his test in the wilderness just like the children of Israel did with theirs? The son is in the desert and he comes face to face with the serpent who was in the garden. And Luke says, do you feel the suspense? Something huge is on the line here. Something which has cosmic and eternal ramifications. The salvation of the world. That's what's on the line. My salvation and yours. Luke is telling a story here that is a micro version of the massive story of redemption. The complete story of the Bible is being played out in one scene. It's a rerun, but there's now a new main character. And we ask, can Jesus enter a world full of failure and not be a failure himself? Will Jesus stumble and fall the way every other human being in history has? Can this Son of God rewrite the story for all eternity, for all humanity? I want you to look with me at the temptations that Jesus faces here in Luke 4, because there's something that runs through all of them, and it's that they all test Jesus' obedience. They all test his obedience. Look at the first temptation in verse 3 and 4, because in it we see the Son's perfect obedience. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
after Adam, after Israel, here is a son who finally obeys God perfectly. Look at the second temptation, verses five to eight, because we see the son's complete devotion to God. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here is a son who is completely devoted to God his father. Do you see what the devil is tempting Jesus Christ with here? He's tempting him to go his own way, to go alone without God. Everything the devil promises to Jesus has already been promised to him. That's what the, the angel Gabriel, the message that he delivered to Mary about her son, what he would be, what he would be given by God. God said he will have an eternal throne. God said he will inherit all things, but only after he dies and rises to life again. See, here in the wilderness, the devil is tempting Jesus with glory now rather than glory later. He's tempting Jesus with glory now without the obedience to God, without the suffering that was necessary, without the cross. Go it your own way, Jesus. Carve out your own path. Don't listen to God the Father. You don't need him. Adam faced that same temptation in the garden, didn't he? God told Adam, you will rule the earth, you'll subdue it, you'll be blessed, you have all that you need. And the devil comes to Adam and tempts him to go alone, to do it himself without God. When you eat this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. That's what the serpent said to Adam. You don't need God, Adam. You can be in charge. You can be on the throne. And we know what happened. Adam failed to trust God. He gave in to the temptation. He served himself rather than God. And Israel, exactly the same. God promised them the land. He promised to bless them and to provide for them, to be their God, and they would be his people. And instead of serving and worshiping God, instead of trusting God at his word, they made an idol for themselves, a golden calf, it became the object of their worship and devotion rather than God. And look at the third temptation, verses nine to 13. We see the son's unwavering trust. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus trusts his Father completely, wholeheartedly. What kind of son do we have here in Luke chapter 4? A son who obeys fully, who serves wholeheartedly, who trusts God 
completely. A son who is not like Adam or Israel. And a son who is not like us. And that's why Luke wants our focus and attention to be on Jesus. God's beloved son, the true and better son. Luke says, do you see the son? See his obedience. Realize what his obedience means for all of us here this morning. Because when we see Jesus for who he really is, we see that Jesus is the answer to all of our failures. It's possible for some of us in the room this morning to be sitting, thinking in our minds, the last thing that I would say about myself or the other people would say about me is that I'm a failure. Maybe we see ourselves as a successful person, very gifted in life. Maybe because of the things that we've achieved. We've got a good job, a good home, plenty of money, stable family relationships. We've done very well for ourselves, thank you very much. Other people would look at us and say exactly the same. What could possibly be a failure about me? Here's what I think Luke would say. People who don't accept their failures will never accept Jesus as a savior. If you haven't seen where you failed, you won't see who Jesus is. And you won't accept Jesus as your savior. Some of us in the room maybe think of ourselves as a bit of a doer-upper. You know, I'm not that bad. Nothing drastic that needs changed, really. Okay, maybe I do need Jesus, but all I really need him for is to kind of brush things up a wee bit. To kind of gloss things over. Just polish and shine. Make a few tweaks here and there. Just minor things, nothing drastic. But if that's what we think of ourselves, then we will never see Jesus as our Savior. We'll never see our need of him because what we need is a deep clean, a complete renovation. We need to be made new, a new heart. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Jesus came into this world. He lived and he died and he rose to life again, not to tweak us and to make minor adjustments to us. He came to make us new, a new creation, to get rid of the old and to bring in the new. Jesus came to redeem us. He came to rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. And people who don't accept their failures will never accept Jesus as a savior. But there are others in the room who will be on the other end of the spectrum completely. Some of us don't need to be told that we're a failure. We don't need to hear it again because we know it already. We feel it about ourselves. We don't need to think back too far in our minds to the last time where we have failed. Something we're ashamed of, somewhere we've disobeyed God. Maybe it was just this morning. 
Maybe it was sometime last week. We know that we are a failure, a sinful person. Our life is overshadowed by feelings of guilt and shame, and we don't come to church to be told that we're a failure, to have that heaped in us again. Luke says to you this morning, yes, you are like Adam, and yes, you are like Israel, but can you see who is at the center of this story, of your story? It's Jesus, one who is bigger than all of our biggest failures. Where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ, God's beloved son, succeeded. Where you and I have failed, morally, spiritually, relationally, Jesus Christ, our Savior, has succeeded. And he did it for us, for you and for me, to rescue us, to redeem us, to release us, from our guilt and shame before God for all the ways that we have failed. See the sun. See the sun going out alone into the wilderness to fight against evil on your behalf. See the sun clothed in flesh like Adam, like Israel, like us, who knows every ounce of our weakness and frailty who experienced every temptation, just as we do, yet never failed. Obedient to the end, perfect in his devotion to his Father. And see the Son whose perfect obedience in the wilderness makes him the perfect sacrifice for sin at the cross. Jesus lived the life none of us could ever live, None of us. And Jesus died the death that all of us deserve. For all our failings, for all of our guilt and shame, his death offers us complete forgiveness from God. Total acceptance. Unending love. Do you see Jesus this morning? Do you see what he has done for you? See the Son, accept the Son as your Savior, and you can be free from all of your guilt and shame forever. The gospel it is such good news, such liberating news, isn't it? Because in a world that says, try harder, be better, do more, the gospel says, it's not about you. It's never about you. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about what he has done. It's not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for you. So trust in him. Just rest in him and his finished work at the cross because it was for you. He achieved what you could never achieve. It's brilliant news, amazing news. Yes, we look to Jesus Christ as our example. He is our perfect example in the Christian life. 
we follow him, we listen and obey his word. We try to live in his ways, to bring glory to his name. But know this, Jesus is our redeemer before he's our example. He is our rescuer before he is our guide. Have you got that the right way round in following Jesus Christ? As we look to him and his finished work, as we trust in him, he enables us, he empowers us by his spirit to live in his ways. He changes us to enable us to fight sin and fight our temptation more and more, to trust him more and more in life. As we look to him and as we trust him, we don't need to fear failure because we know that in Jesus Christ, we're forgiven. He's done it all for us already. Our salvation is complete. We are secure. Jesus Christ has won the victory for us. Sin and evil are done. And Jesus Christ, he reigns on his throne forever. So we're going to come to the communion table this morning. As we finish, where we eat this bread and we drink this wine, and we come to this meal which symbolizes our failure. It symbolizes the way, ways that we have failed morally, spiritually, where we've not trusted God wholeheartedly, where we've served ourselves and worshiped other things in this world apart from him. That's what this meal represents. But more than that, it represents Jesus Christ's victory for us on our behalf his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, which covers all of our feelings so that we can come to the table as those who receive God's mercy and grace. We come to the table as those who have failed, yes, but we come to the table as those who are forgiven, accepted by God through Jesus. If you're someone who has never trusted in Jesus, well, this meal, it isn't yet for you. But what I would encourage you to do this morning, maybe for the first time in your life, is to bring all of your sin, all of your feelings to Jesus Christ and to leave them at the cross. To walk away from here knowing the freedom of God's forgiveness forever. Because Jesus Christ at the cross, he has paid the penalty for those feelings. He has done all that needs to be done to, to wash them away, to, to wipe your slate clean forever. Come to him, leave all your burdens and feelings with him and leave here as someone who is free forever. We're going to sing the song, His Mercy is More, as we come to the communion table. And it's a song that's been ringing in my head all week. Because at this song, the words, they just highlight so much of, of what Jesus Christ has done uh, in taking all of our feelings on himself, but giving us all that he has achieved on the cross, his victory for us. 
And as we come to the table, I want us to, to meditate on these words, especially the words of the first verse. Here's what it says. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's come to the table and let's praise the Lord together.